Hey everyone, welcome back to the Good Lion Podcast. This is Aaron, and I'm here to tell you that we are currently working on several new episodes. Sometime next week, we'll probably be putting out an episode Brian and I did that was a question and response episode. That's going to be a lot of fun. We're also working on a journalistic piece where we're analyzing a recent article that was written called Five Signs Your Church Might Be Headed Towards Progressive Christianity. That's going to be interesting. But on today's episode, we are actually going to debut a new segment that we're doing called The Pod Class. For a while now, we've had this idea to create a podcast classroom where we bring in students and talk about a particular subject. And so on this show, we're going to give you a sneak peek at what that new show is going to look like by playing episodes of the first season. We've gathered together a small group of students here in Oklahoma City, and with them, we've put together a short class on the topic of fighting sexual objectification together. We think this is a really important topic. We hope you enjoy this new segment on our show. And so with that, here is the first episode of the Good Lion Pod Class. My name is Scott Ulrich. My name is Lindsay Chave. Uh, my name is Michael Riley. My name is Kayla England. And I'm Aaron Salvato. Welcome to the Good Lion Pod Class, a show where we get a small group of students together with a teacher to learn and discuss theology and the Christian life. And then we share those conversations with all of you. Today, we're beginning a class on the subject of fighting sexual objectification together. Today's episode is titled, The Problem of Objectification. We at Goodline believe in our cultural moment right now, it's extremely important that we talk about the problem of how men and women objectify one another and what we can do to stand against that as brothers and sisters in Christ. We believe that this is not a male problem or a female problem, but a human problem. Here's how the pod class will work. Our class leader, which will be myself for this series, will teach from material on the subject. And then at several points in each episode, there'll be a break for discussion between the teacher and students. Now, since this is the first episode, before we get started, we're going to have our students go around, introduce themselves, let you know who they are, and then we'll get into the material. Thanks for listening. We're so glad that you're with us. Let's hear from the students. My name is Scott Ulrich. I work at uh, Air Force Base here in Oklahoma City uh, as an aerospace engineer. And what I hope to get out of this is kind of a, a, a mixed, uh, a lot of different perspectives on a very touchy issue uh, in the Christian circles. And just having some really open dialogue, especially uh, between the male and the female. Um, so, yeah, awesome. My name is Lindsay Chave. I am a recent graduate from Oklahoma Christian, and I'm just excited to get a different perspective and a different, like, insight from all of these guys about this topic. Uh, My name is Michael Riley. Uh, I work for a company here in Oklahoma City that uh, produces pressure relief valves for the oil and gas industry, and I'm a safety representative for them. And the main thing I'm looking forward to getting out of this is really honestly um, hearing the girl's perspective um, on what it uh, means to be objectified and fighting that as well. So. My name is Kayla England and I'm a fifth grade reading and social studies teacher. And I really, um, I'm excited to hear the different opinions but also learn how to actually talk about it with other people in the, in the real world or even in the church setting as well. All right, so you've heard from the four students, Mike, Lindsay, Scott, and Kayla. 
Now we're going to get started with the lesson. I'm actually going to be opening up with going over a story from Judges chapter 19, which I have to say is one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible to listen to. In fact, I have to actually place a warning here that this story in the Bible actually contains pretty graphic depictions of rape, murder, and dismemberment which is an incredibly difficult story to listen to, but it's a very important story because it frames for us the entire groundwork for what we're going to be studying about this topic of objectification. So without any further ado, here is the pod class. So Judges 19 contains what I would describe as one of the worst stories in the entire Bible. And I know how that sounds, but I think it truly is a story that should make us sick. It's one of the prime examples of the entire theme of the book of Judges, which really is a kingless kingdom, a kingdom without a king. My goal today is not to just look at this story for the sake of looking at it, but to look at it in light of the cross and what it means for us today as Christians. So here's the plan. We're going to cover the story. I'm going to give you a little commentary and help you understand what's happening. And then I'm going to give a talk on a very important issue that I think the text brings us to. And that specifically is the topic of objectification. So without further ado, let's jump into the story of Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19 verse 1 says, It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. The man takes for himself a concubine, and she becomes unhappy and unfaithful to him, and she leaves to go stay at her dad's house for four months. So the man decides he's going to go after her and try to win her back. The story starts with a disclaimer, there was no king in the land. And that's really a warning that though what happened in this chapter may have been right to some people in Israel, it was not right to God. So the story opens on a Levite. A Levite was a man from the tribe of Levi who was basically of the family of priests in Israel. And the story opens with his concubine, a concubine was essentially a sex slave, a woman who was a second-class wife who didn't have any of the rights of a normal wife and was there basically just to have sex with a man and have children with him. Now, if we look from Genesis to Revelation about what Scripture actually says about marriage, we can see that marriage was intended to be between one man and one woman. But in Israel at the time, the Israelites were going with the culture instead of God. They were imitating the other nations around them. And we see this all throughout scripture from Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon. We see instances of polygamy in the Bible that lead to heartache and suffering. This is a sin that our God Yahweh allows at the time, but it's not actually his heart for humanity. And it's troubling that a Levite who's supposed to be set apart for God has adopted the pagan practices of his culture. This relationship is not a good one. And we see in the text that she leaves, and we don't exactly know why she left. It could have been that he was abusive. It could have been that she was jealous of his other wife or wives. Or it could have been because of her standing as a sex slave that there was no real love in the relationship which caused her to leave. The text isn't sure, but it does say that she left him and cheated on him. So the girl runs to her dad's house because in that time, to cheat on your husband could be punished by death. And it's interesting to note that the man waits four months to go after her. In this class, I'm going to be quoting a lot from Timothy Keller's book, Judges for You. Keller says this, Some have proposed that he was giving her time to cool off, 
but that's surely reading modern sensibilities back into the text. He evidently was not too bothered about having his concubine back, but eventually he either wanted the sex or the status or both. These verses show us that this is neither a loving nor a lasting relationship. So we pick the story back up as the man goes to her dad's house to get her back. He says, hey, let's party. So they eat and drink together for three whole days. Then in verse five, it says, when it came to pass on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning and he stood to depart. The young woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh your heart with a morsel of bread and then afterwards you can go your way. So they sat down and the two of them ate and drank together. And then the young woman's father said to the man, please be content to stay all night. Let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him again. And so they stayed another night. And this goes on and on and on for some time. The father continues to press his son-in-law to stay and eat more bread and drink more wine. This raises the question, why did the father try to keep the man at the house for so long? Well, one solution is that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, there was a demand that hospitality must be shown. But notice, he's overdoing it. He almost seems desperate. Why? Well, consider this. The penalty for adultery and a slave leaving their owner was death for the slave and disgrace for the family. It's highly likely that the father just wants to ensure that the Levite won't press charges, and he's deeply relieved that all the guy wants is just to take his property back. Now, here's the question to consider. Did the woman get much of a say in this situation? Keller writes this. Interestingly, there is nothing in the text to say that the woman was persuaded. All the action shifts to the interactions between her father and her husband. We are never told that she listened to the Levite or that she agreed to return. Every indication is that the father gave her back to the Levite without her having any choice or making any decision. Both the father and husband treat this woman as an object. One wants to avoid disgrace. The other wants to secure sexual favors. Neither care about the woman herself. So in the story, the man and his slave wife start heading home and it's a long trip and they're getting very tired. So they reach a town and they decide to stay there. Then an old man comes up to them and says, hey, come stay at my place, but please don't sleep out here in the town square. I beg of you. And this is an ominous line that sets up the tone for the rest of the chapter because the old man knows there's something dark and satanic wandering these streets. And here's the terrible thing. It's not a demon or a monster. It's humans. Humans who have rejected to see people as made in the image of God and instead people who only use others. So let's look at verse 22. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him carnally or sexually. They wanted to rape this man. So this is horrible. There's a mob of men pounding on the door saying, bring out your guest so we can rape him. It's absolutely horrifying. And it indicates that this sort of thing happened all of the time in this town. Imagine the horror of being in this scene. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. And then the old man gets up to defend his guests. And he bravely makes two points. He says, this would be a vile thing to do. This man is my guest. I have a duty to protect him. And this is good. But this is the last part of the story where we see anything good. What this old man does next is horrifyingly evil. I'm going to pick it back up in verse 23. The master of the house went out to them and said, No, my brothers, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. This man is coming to my house. He's a guest. Do not commit this outrage. And then in verse 24, he says, Look, here's my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out to you now. Humble them and do with them whatever you want. But to this man, do not do such a vile 
thing, but the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine, brought her out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. This is why I said this is one of the worst chapters in the Bible. It's bad. A horrible, cowardly thing happens. Instead of risking their lives to save the women, these men are totally willing to shove the women and their lives out the door to save themselves. Consider the depths of how tragic this is. The story tells us that the daughter of the old man was a virgin, and her father was totally willing to let her first sexual experience be one where she was raped by a group of men outside their house. The story tells us that the concubine was literally raped to death. It's so tragic. It spits in the face of everything that sexuality, beauty, and humanity was supposed to be. It's a slap in the face to our God, Yahweh. When people harm other humans in this way, it's unspeakable. And it shows where the heart of the culture is at. Because think of it, this was a culture that valued women as second class citizens. Remember in the story, when the angry mom shows up to the house, they say, send out the man so we can rape him. And what happens? They don't send out the concubine because she's a servant. If that were the case, they could have sent out the male servant of the house. What does the old man say? He says, don't do this to the man. He's my guest. Instead, you can have this concubine and you can have my daughter. Why? Because they were women. They were treated in this culture as property, as less valuable, as expendable. And this is so far from what God originally designed when he made our first parents, Adam and Eve. This is the tragedy because it shows how strong the curse of sin is in the world. And it's even found in the pages of scripture. In the Old Testament, we see many Bible heroes treating the women in their lives as property. You see, even though God called these men to follow him, they were still impacted by their culture. God had to work together with sinful men to accomplish his purposes. And it wasn't until we saw Jesus and then Peter and Paul after him that the cultural mindset in the Bible began to shift towards seeing women as equals, as valuable, and as precious which was always the way God intended it to be. This story shows us how far humans can stray from the heart of God. It's easy to read these Old Testament stories and think, God must approve of this. It's in the Bible. The reality is he doesn't. Remember, the Father and Son and Spirit were there in this moment when this happened. Their hearts were breaking for these women. They were looking forward to the day when Jesus would come and pave a way for men and women to be valued as image bearers of Yahweh through the death of Jesus on the cross. Tragically, this is just one of the many stories in the Old Testament where sexually broken people hurt and abuse one another. And it gets worse. She had been raped and abused so much that it took the life out of her. She'd been abused to death. This passage should cause our hearts to break for this woman. Because as Arthur E. Kundal describes, if ever a human being endured a night of utter horror, it was she. That night must have been for her as dark as the pit itself. Look at the Levite, this priest. Verse 27 says he arose in the morning. This means he was able to sleep that night. He was able to sleep knowing what happened to his concubine. The first thing he does is not go out and look for her. No, he opens the doors of the house and prepares to continue his journey. And then when he's all packed up and ready, he sees her there lying on the ground, and all he can say is, get up, it's time to go. As a husband, 
I don't think I've ever hated a Bible character more than I hate this guy. He talks to her like someone would talk to an animal. The man has no heart. This woman to him has always been an object, nothing more, nothing less. He doesn't see her as human. She was there for his pleasure, and now she's dead, and he continues to treat her as an object. You would think this story couldn't get even worse, but it does. The man picks up her body, puts it on a donkey, takes it back home, then he chops her body into pieces and mails it to the different tribes of Israel. Why? For vengeance. Not because of how the woman was treated. After all, he's the one who pushed her out the door. Instead, it's because of the loss of his property. He wants to make a statement to the tribe saying, This is wrong. My property was taken away from me. And he completely misses the point. What's actually wrong is what happened to this woman. But the Levite never sees it because to him, the woman was always an object. And this is horrifying. It's tragic. It's the perfect picture of what a kingless kingdom looks like. And it's easy for us to read this story and think, oh, this is so evil. However, we all have the same potential for this kind of evil in our flesh. One of the biggest sin issues in this chapter is the objectification of other humans. The question I would pose for you is, does this story help you see how serious the problem of objectification is? That's why we designed this class, because we want people to understand objectification of humans made in God's image is a huge problem. One that we believe God is calling men and women to fight together, to stand together and say, this is a human issue, but through the power of the gospel, we can make a change. All right. So uh, pretty bleak and uh, pretty terrible. So, yeah, I think to start out with, my question for you guys would just be, what's your reaction to the story? And do you have any questions so far? Reaction would definitely be just heart wrenching because I... Yeah, this is the first time I went through that in a very long time. That story, man, that's really is brutal, especially mm -hmm. in the way you kind of highlight certain aspects. Um, man, that's brutal. Yeah, it's terrible. I think disgust mm -hmm. comes to mind for sure. Just the sheer fact of, and you pointed out just the fact that it was just someone who looked at another human being as an object and not a human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's probably one of the like darkest depictions of that reality in the Bible. Anybody else? It leaves me kind of speechless because it's like, it's already happened. Like this story has already happened, but knowing that it still happens mm -hmm. today, it's mm. disgusting. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And not only is the husband doing that, but as a father, it's happening as well mm. in the story. And that just totally puts a different title on who God the father is as well. Mm. And in her mm. mind in the story. Mm. So not only is husband ruined, but now father is soiled too. Yeah. Neither one of the men are living up to their righteousness, their their roles of relationship. They're they're called to protect and serve. But in that culture, uh, it was this misogynistic, you know, very patriarchal culture. And it's easy to read the Old Testament and think like, oh, well, all the Old Testament characters were that way. So God must be that way. But actually, you know, the way these men were acting, it wasn't a product of God. It was a perversion of what God intended in the garden. Um, I want to introduce you guys to an author named uh, Joshua Ryan Butler. He wrote an amazing book called The Skeletons in God's Closet. And in his book, he talks about the concept of hell. And he talks about it as something that's not just a future destination that people go to when they die, but also a present reality. Basically, like his thesis is where people rebel against God, they actually are creating hell on earth. So there's a future hell, but there's also a present reality. And I think that this story shows us like this is a moment of hell on earth where 
the disobedience and rebellion creates this, this space where just so much evil is happening. And I think he has a really good perspective on how to deal with the hell that's in all of us. And so I want to show you just a really brief clip from uh, a video that he did. The irony is that we want hell. We want life without God, and we choose destructive things all the time that are tearing our world apart. Take sex trafficking, for example. Most of us want that out of God's world. I spent a summer overseas working against it and was disgusted by the exploitation of kids for sex. But as I read my Bible, I realized Jesus wants sex trafficking out of his world too, only he takes it a lot more seriously than I do. I want to prune back the problem of sex trafficking. Jesus wants to dig out the root, the root of things like pride, lust, rage, and greed, things we all struggle with. Luckily, Jesus' question for us is not, are you good enough to get into my city? His question is rather, will you let me heal you? So any thoughts on what he just said there? Did you guys kind of catch what he was throwing down, like that the concept of what he's going for here with this picture? We're looking at a picture on the screen of a tree that says sex trafficking. And then down at the bottom, you've got the roots of pride, lust, rage, and greed. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like the issue is here. I mean, obviously the issue is sex trafficking, but the main issue is the underlying themes of, of pride, lust. Mm. Um, objectification is what we're talking about today. And I think that, is because of the culture we live in and specifically, you know, the pornification of our society. Mm -hmm. Like for, for men like Scott and I, I think that that is um, why sometimes, unfortunately, we look at women as objects because mm -hmm. of the society that we live in, not just the pornification, but also the, the, um, the swipe right culture mm. of all these dating apps yeah. that were created to meet people. But, all it has done is just light a fire to the hookup culture, yeah. which ties into that underlying theme of lust and, and pride and all that. It's mm, good, Mike. Anybody else? Any thoughts on this? When I think of this, I think of Christine Kane's like A21 sex trafficking thing because they're going in there and picking up all the people mm. that they can and like trying to give all the awareness that they can, but they're not dealing with the the roots of it and it like this picture puts it into place like mm. that we're just cutting off the branches we're not digging in the soil like we need to be right because so often it's like we'll have an issue where like just like you know pure example of what a lot of people struggle with and we'll talk more about this but you know pornography you can say oh like i i'm struggling with this issue i need to deal with it but you're just going after the branches you're not going after the deep-seated issue of lust that's in your heart and with so many things, it's like when we're just trimming the branches, what happens is the branches grow back. So it's like we need to go for the root. Uh, anybody else? And then we'll move on. I, th I think there's also something to be said about, I mean, to go solely after pride, lust, rage, greed, and like completely ignore sex trafficking in general. I, mean, mm. I think there's some, some people that kind of use that argument to say, oh, I'm just going to ignore it and like focus. Yeah. And like, on me. Not, yeah, and on me and like. I think there, I mean, both needs to happen, but yeah, that's definitely true. Getting to the heart of it is way more important, but I think yeah. there's also, also a need to also cut off the branches. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's a good perspective. I think that um, if we put the cart before the horse, we'll have an issue. But if the, the horse is where it should be, if that makes sense, like if we're dealing with lust in our life to the point where we hate our own sin or we hate our lust, then that's going to cause us to be very passionate about going after some of these other things. So that's a good point. So I, I think the point is here, it's an issue of the heart and the root of all sin is found in the heart. So I want to tackle the topic of objectification as a matter of the heart. And I just want to say this too. 
So I'm a guy and we've got two girls in the room. Um, three, actually. My wife is sitting over there in the corner. Um, and uh, I, I'm a guy. And as far as like being objectified, I don't really know if that's happened to me that much. So there's things that you guys have probably experienced in your life that I haven't. And I've, I'll never be able to walk in your shoes. Um, so if I say anything that is just, you know, you have a different perspective and you want to push back on it, feel free to, because I haven't been where you've been, but as a husband, a son, a brother, and a pastor to middle school and high school girls, this is a topic that I believe matters and just understand you, know, I'm up here doing my best. So if I misrepresent you, <laughs> you know, let me know. I apologize. Um, so that being said, we're going to go into the topic of fighting objectification together. So I, I believe objectification is something that every human struggles with. But I also believe that it's of the enemy and it's not of God at all. And so the way going forward, I think, is while our culture is saying two different messages, either this is a, this is a man problem and men just need to straighten up and stop being perverts and just get their act together. Or culture says this is a woman problem. Women need to just dress better and, and be more modest. I think this is a human issue. It's not a man issue. It's not a woman issue. It's a human issue. And Christians, Christian men and women need to join together and hold hands on this and say, we're going to fight this together. So that's my goal here. Are you, are you with me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Let's get into it. So objectification. What is objectification? It is something that is the action of degrading someone to the status of a mere object. The first place we see this happen in the Bible is Genesis, right after Cain kills Abel. We learn of a man named Lamech. He was a violent man who kills his enemies and collects wives like property. So objectification has been around a long time. It's ancient. I want to look at some of the science that's behind objectification. So there's a part of the brain that lights up in men. It's the same place when a man looks at tools and when he looks at a woman. It's this utilitarian part of the brain that basically says, this is something I can use, something that benefits me. This is the current status of a lot of men. This is where their brains are at. And so I, I think, you know, if any guy here would deny this, I think one of the biggest evidences we see of this being true is the widespread use and easy um, access of pornography. Now, I think um, the average age, or actually, I, I know based on statistics, the average age someone is exposed and addicted to porn is 11 years old as of 2016. And with the rise of young children being given smartphones and access to social media apps, the average age will become younger and younger with each passing year. So this is, it's not just a male problem. According to a study published in the Journal of Adolescent Research, about half, 49% of young women agree that viewing porn is an acceptable way of expressing one's sexuality. And it's not just a problem in culture. It is also a problem in the church. I remember spending some time with some Bible college students and overhearing their conversation. And they were basically rating the different girls at their school based on their appearance. So just going through the list of the girls that were there that semester and giving them different numbers assigned to how hot they were. So it, it happens even in the church. And, and currently we're facing the reports of many sex scandals in the church right now. Now, another fascinating study shows the implications of something called global and local processing. So when we humans look at things, we tend to see them through either a global or local lens. Um, here's an example of global processing. Global processing is when you see and judge something as a whole. For instance, you look at a house and you just see it as one complete thing. 
a house. That's global processing. How many of you guys are like that? You look at a house and you just kind of see it for what it is. Like it's just there. Anybody? Yes. I'm more like that. Then there's local processing. You see and judge something based on individual parts. You look at a house and you see the windows and the doors and you're noticing all the details. Is anyone more oriented that way? You look at a house and you're noticing windows and doors and that sort of thing. Maybe? Yeah? Okay. So this is fine when it comes to houses, but studies have shown that we do this as humans and there's very dark implications for how we do this. So studies have shown that both men and women tend to see men through the lens of global processing, meaning when you see a man, your first instinct is to view him as the sum of his parts. So you check out a guy and you're just like, oh, it's a guy. You just see him as a complete package. However, these studies also reveal that women are usually seen through local processing by both men and actually women, meaning women are seen and judged based on their parts, not the whole. So we see that there is this serious disadvantage that women have in our culture. One of pornography, women are just objectified to no end in pornography and made the subject of pornography and the object of men's desire in pornography. There's cultural expectations. Women are constantly uh, expected to look a certain way and act a certain way. And, you know, you, you can't be too skinny, but you also can't be too fat and you have to be sexy and all these things. There's the advertising culture that just every time you walk down and see a magazine aisle, there's just women depicted as you know, sexual objects and even clothing brands. Um, and a issue I remember the girls in my youth group talking about was, you know, it'd be summer camp and they're trying to buy clothes for summer camp. And every year the clothes would just get smaller and smaller. Um, and, and the film industry, the film industry objectifies women to no end. If you'll notice, they did a study where they were looking at movie posters. So take like the Avengers, for instance, when you're looking at a movie poster, oftentimes the male figures are front and center. They're standing there and they're looking directly at the camera and they're just, they're just forward facing. Women are usually standing in a way where they're turning and looking over their shoulders so you can see their breasts and their rear end. And that's very like just go through and look at different movie posters and you'll see women are usually posed in that way. So I just want to stop and take a moment and just say, Let's discuss this. And, and, and you girls maybe give us some perspective on how you feel about these things. But um, let, let's talk about the disadvantage to women in the culture or anything else that's on your mind based on what we talked about so far. I haven't even really, like when you mentioned that men and women were posed differently, I never noticed that. And maybe, like now that I think about it, maybe that's because it's just such a norm hmm. for me to see that. And for me to, yeah, for me to see that and grow up seeing that in movies or on posters or in magazines, like, it doesn't even, like, what is it when you watch something so many times? Like, it doesn't register? Desensitize, oh, maybe, yeah. to even that that's how we're being viewed mm. in culture. Mm. And maybe sometimes that even happens, and I don't even realize that that's how it's happening to me. Yeah. You know, those kinds of things. I would say that we're all absolutely desensitized to this type of thing. Anybody else? I think growing, like, I was going to say growing up as a girl, but, um... Being a girl and dealing with the lashes that came at you, like I was like a toothpick in when I was little, and so everybody was like, "Oh, you're too skinny. Do you like not eat food? Do you have like <laughs> an eating disorder?" And it was just like, "Wow, no, I just was built this way." And so, like as I've grown up, I've just like almost like like Kayla said, desensitized myself to those comments or just like people commenting on how I look or just things like that. So it's at this point, being 22, like nothing bothers me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys think? Any, any thoughts from the guys? 
or any questions from anybody on anything we've talked about? I, I think, I think for me, what I have taken away is just the fact that women have been basically degraded as a second rate citizen. Hmm. And that's not fair because um, if you look at the Bible and the, and the beginning of the Bible and, and how Adam and Eve were like God put them together as one flesh. I mean, that's what marriage is, is one flesh. Hmm. So it's, it's really um, just kind of stupid <laughs> that society has gotten away from that hmm. since that women have become a second rate uh, citizen. And I think that's, what's kind of cool to see what's happening with the me too movement hmm. um, and see that, that women are actually sick and tired of it and, and are actually, stepping up and, and using the voice that they were given to kind of push back against that. I think just the desensitization, that's the word, desensitization. I don't even know what word that, yeah. Desensitized, like hearing about, reading through the Judges 19 story and like, I'm just trying to think and put myself in the shoes of the, the girls that were like in the house of whoever, the, the men that, basically gave their daughter, his daughter and concubine up. I wonder how desensitized they were to that. Mm. Even like how much we are a product of our culture as yeah. uh, wherever we're at. And, and Kayla, you were saying like, you didn't even notice that like the stances and I didn't either. And that's just, it's hard to get outside of your own viewpoint and where you're at in culture to where I think you almost need to keep going back to the gospel mm. each time to refresh yourself and say, okay, this is where culture deviates from mm. the gospel. And that's, I think for, as, as a Christian, it's really, really important. I think just learning about it. And it's like, man, that's mm. even, it, it wasn't already important enough to keep going back to the gospel for your own spirit to go back to remind yourself that you're where your culture is different than what God's heart is at. Hmm. It's good. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, girls. Any anything else from anybody? Yeah, go for it. And and, and lean into the mic. Okay, uh, I also want to point out that like even in the story of uh, what was the guy that we just from Genesis Judges nineteen? No, not Judges. The one that you, like, oh Lamech. Yeah, yeah Lamech. Um, right. This okay. This has nothing to do with that. Never mind. Uh, but <laughs> I did want to say that, like, it's even gotten to the point culturally, and it happened in the Bible too, where women are so used to it that they even like they they're just like, okay, well, I guess that's how it's going to be, and then they yeah. start wearing less clothes and they start posting now pictures of themselves on Instagram for that attention because that's mm. just the attention they're going to get anyways. Yeah. So, mm. like, that's something that as women we have to watch. Like, we have to realize that that's not the attention that we're looking for. Right. But then again, if you're in the world, like it's hard because that's what the world's giving you. Right. Yeah. And it's a question of what were you made for? And I think every single one of us was made for love and, and to worship God. And our lifestyle should be one of an act of worship where we bring glory to God. And also like, it's not just this blind worship, but we are all of us made to love and be loved um, by God and by other humans. And I think that the way that culture uses women is it doesn't actually say you're, you're meant to be loved. It's saying you're meant to be used. Yeah. And it's just, that's, that's the alternative. You look at marriage and marriage is something where, yeah, there's total sexuality that happens in marriage, but it's, it's all based out of love. It's not just this cheap sexuality where we use one another and we move on. It's, it's love. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening to episode one of the pod class. 
Stay tuned for next week's episode as we look at the roots of objectification found in Genesis and the link between Pharaoh, slavery, and the culture of objectification. We'd like to thank Joshua Ryan Butler for his writings on hell and other topics. If you'd like to go deeper into his views, check out his fantastic book, Skeletons in God's Closet. We'd also like to thank Jefferson Bethke. We used a lot of his material in our research. If you'd like to check that out, search for Jefferson Bethke's great talk he gave at the Q Ideas Conference entitled, What is My Role in the Objectification of Women? We hope that this class has been helpful to you, and we'd like to produce many more. If you want to support the work and help us make more great pod classes, check out goodlion.io slash support. Also, if this episode has stirred up any questions in you, we'd love to do a Q&A episode responding to your questions in this series. So if you can send a question to our Instagram account, goodlion.io, or send an email to goodlionnetwork at gmail.com, we'd love to respond to your questions. The Good Lion Pod Class is a production of CGN, or Calvary Global Network, and has said creative. We are a nonprofit podcasting ministry run by a team of volunteers that seeks to bring quality, Jesus-focused content to the body of Christ. For more awesome podcast content, as well as articles, educational resources, and more, check out our website, goodlion.io. Thanks, guys. And remember, never stop learning.